Scripture tonight's Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever uh, had the experience where uh, you're, you're reading a, a text that you're pretty familiar with, and, and suddenly you begin to read it a new way or a different way. Now that's what happened to me this week as I uh, looked at this wonderful passage. Um, Philippians 2, 12 to 13 is, is one of the great classic passages that we normally think of in terms of personal sanctification. In other words, the way Christians become more like Jesus. And, and if you look up, as I did, uh, sanctification in any theology textbooks, you will see uh, this verse mentioned, and essentially the idea is that God works in us as we work to become holy people, work to become more like Him. And I thought that was uh, where we were going tonight, but the more that I studied it, and the more I read commentaries on it, uh, the more I saw a different way of reading it, and, uh, and that's, that's where I'm going to uh, share with you tonight. The first clue that there might be a little different something going on here is that word, therefore, in verse 12. Paul tells them to work out their salvation, and it's because, therefore, work out your salvation. And whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you always want to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And the therefore is to link you to an argument that has gone before. And there is an argument that goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27, that is essentially about, Loving well. It's essentially about being that Trinitarian people that we just uh, saw the, the video about. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 28 or 27, Paul says, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. Then in chapter 2, he continues the idea. Chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy, be of the same mind, have the same love, being in full accord, being of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then he talks about Jesus as the ultimate example of, of uh, loving well, of loving sacrificially. And we looked at that two weeks ago. So the context of this passage is about uh, the, the church, the spiritual family in Philippi uh, dealing with relational dysfunction and sin and loving one another well, now another clue that something different might be going on here is in verse 12, when Paul says, work out your own salvation, in the Greek he uses a plural form of the word your. So he's speaking not of individual salvation, but of corporate salvation. He is saying, Philippians, the, the, the family of God in Philippi, I want, I want you to work out your whole community's salvation. 
And the last clue is that the Greek word for salvation can be translated uh, deliverance from sin or health and well-being, depending on the context. So uh, another way we can understand this passage is, is something like this. Philippians, your church has become spiritually ill because you've allowed sin to infect your relationships. Take whatever steps are necessary to restore your community to health and wholeness. And I think that may be more of what Paul has in mind here because it better seems to fit the context. The other is certainly true. One commentator puts it like this after a long discussion. Uh, he says, Thus the church at Philippi is urged to work at its spiritual well-being until its health is fully established, until every trace of spiritual disease, selfishness, dissension, and so on is gone. In other words, he seems to be saying, he's saying, Philippians, I love you, beloved. Work hard at the relational health of your spiritual community. And he says, this is a matter of obedience to the Lord. He says, as you've always obeyed, so now work out your salvation. Uh, This idea of working on our relationships is a matter of gospel relationships. And the, the verb that he uses... Uh, is a little different verb for obey. It's one that has the idea of hearing the word of God and then submitting to it. So it seems to be the idea that that there are all these instructions in the word of God about how the people of God are to relate to each other, and he says, I want you to obey those. Work at obeying those. Now here is a list of just a few of those relational commands that uh, we'll review real quickly here. Love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another above yourselves, live in harmony with one another, build up one another, be like-minded towards one another, accept one another, admonish one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. Consider others better than yourselves. Look out for the interests of one another. Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Show hospitality to one another. Employ the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Pray for one another. Confess our faults to one another. We work for relational health by hearing and obeying what God's word says about caring for each other. Now, Paul's going to spend the rest of this little passage uh, telling us how to do that. The first thing that we notice is he says in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work on the relationships in your life. Work on the relational spiritual health of your spiritual community with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, usually when the Bible uses those words together in relationship to Christian obedience, it means with awe and reverence, uh, with awe and 
reverence. Now, why, why would, would that matter so much? Well, one reason why we ought to approach this matter of our relationships, you know, and I'm thinking of everything from your friends in this room to the other circles of relationships that you're in, that's all where God calls us. One of the reasons we should approach it with a degree of awe and trembling is because people matter so much to God. C.S. Lewis, a friend reminded me this week of his great uh, little book, The Weight of Glory. And there's a, a quote in there uh, that we're going to look at just for a moment because it's a wonderful uh, description about who you're really dealing with when you're in a relationship. Lewis says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of an ant. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Well, that's one reason we uh, uh, take a deep breath. <laughs> you know, Lewis is not the easiest guy to quote in the middle of a sermon. Um, that's one reason we should take this seriously and with a degree of awe and reverence is because the person you're trying to relate to or maybe you're disagreeing with or whatever is made in the image of God. Now, there's another reason, and um, that's the cross. Uh, if, if you remember two weeks ago, in the verses leading up to this passage, particularly uh, verses 5 all the way through 11, Paul talks about Jesus' death on the cross where he bears the violence of our sin into himself without retaliation as the model for our relating. That is a very sober <laughs> uh, picture of what relationship looks like. And I've been thinking about that. Um, this week I had lunch with Troy McNeil, a uh, dear brother who was here for a number of years and was on our staff for a while, and now he's doing a wonderful job over at Grayson Peace Church on Magnolia. And Troy and I were, were talking about uh, Anabaptist theology, and we won't go into what that is if it doesn't matter that much, but uh, one of the themes of Anabaptist theology, the peace churches, is this idea of nonviolence. And, and, and so I was asking Troy what nonviolence meant to him, and, and he said it's not so much these big questions about whether a Christian goes to war. He said nonviolence to me means that at a personal level, I absorb the violence of an injustice into myself without retaliation. And then I move towards that person in love. 
does that not make you tremble? That makes me tremble. And so I think what it means when you know we're in conflict, or when I hurt you, or you hurt me, what what we're saying is that to, to follow the example of the cross is that I receive the violence that you do to me, take it into myself as Christ did, and don't retaliate. And then move towards you in love. That makes me tremble. That's a pretty high standard. Which uh, is one reason why I'm very thankful for the verse 13. <laughs> verse 13 says, It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here's the standard. We work out our relational health together like Christ did, even bearing violence without retaliation and then moving in love. The only way that that is possible at all is if we understand that God has invaded us by the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit gives us the will to do God's good pleasure. The only way this kind of uh, relational work can happen is by the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit. So I think our posture needs to be something like this. Lord, I'm willing to work for relational wholeness, but I can't do it on my own. Lead me. Convict me, Holy Spirit, of relational sin. Expose bitterness, anger, and resentment in my heart. Show me if there is anyone I need to pursue. And when I go to them, show me what to say. And if it goes badly, help me bear the violence of their anger as you bore my sin on the cross. Mark Nelson is a good friend and a very gifted pastor. He pastors crossings, which meets here in the morning. And he calls, he talks about breaking off shalom. Shalom is this wonderful picture of relational wholeness. And Mark says that when relationships fall apart in the family of God, you have the breaking off of shalom. And so maybe something that we could pray is, Lord, what where has where have I contributed to the breaking off of shalom? What is in my heart that might contribute to the breaking off of shalom? One of the reasons why I think it's so hard to repair shalom is because we don't allow God to work through us. We're not led by the Spirit as we try to work these things out. We're led by a lot of other things. We're led by fear. We're led by a demand to be respected and understood. You know, all of that. One of the ways I think that we can be led by the Spirit when we work on relationships is to trust Him in regards to timing. This is something I'm learning about, and I don't think I understand it yet, but I've always kind of taken that verse in Ephesians very, very literally, don't let the sun go down in your anger. And I created some horrible nights in my marriage <laughs> when we were both exhausted and maybe had been going at it and it's 11.58, you know, or the sun's going down or something. It's like, honey, the Bible says we've got to deal with it. And, you know, 
that's not always the best time to deal with conflict. Um, the principle's clear, right? Deal with relational problems quickly. But I, I, I think we need to be more sensitive to the leading and timing of the Holy Spirit about our relationships. Because maybe it's not time to talk about that with your husband again. Um, maybe, maybe you need to take a little break and go see a movie. Maybe that relationship that you're so focused on, maybe the Holy Spirit is saying, you know, just give that one a rest. Now, he may be saying, go have a talk. But I think we've got to live under the sovereignty of the Spirit as we try to work out these relational things. And here's when I can tell I'm going under the wrong reason. I feel compelled and obligated and driven to get this doggone thing done. So I can check it off and tell the Holy Spirit that we're cool. I think the appropriate way is, is more of his love, right? It is the Spirit works in us in a loving way, and I contact you or you contact me because we love each other. We want to work this out. For me, one of the ways of bearing the violence of, uh, of conflict is... Maybe to sit with something for a while. To bear it and pray about it. Try to discern what the Spirit's saying. Paul does say this to the Ephesians. Let each of you speak the truth with your neighbor. Be angry. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So the good news is... We're not on our own. I love the songs tonight. We're not on our own. The Holy Spirit will work within us to repair shalom. That's the good news. The not so good news is that if we resist the Spirit, the Spirit's convicting me about an attitude in my heart, and I'm resisting it. The Spirit is saying, it's time for you to have that talk, and I'm resisting it, whatever it is. If I'm gossiping and the Spirit is saying, don't do that, and I keep gossiping, I grieve the Spirit, I shut him down and somehow invoke demonic powers into the relationship, into the community. That's worse than fear and trembling, too. So it's serious stuff. Serious stuff. Be led by the Spirit as you think of these things. Now, he continues his instruction about working towards relational health in verse 14. With a very simple little verse, he says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning or grumbling or complaining. Or, it depends on your translation. And he uses a, a phrase that uh, was, he uses again in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, about the Israelites grumbling against Moses in the desert. And so probably what he's talking about here, what most commentators think, you know, Paul's a realist, right? So... Paul knows that one of the ways communities fragment, where shalom is fractured, is when leaders make decisions. And you don't think they made the right one. And that happens, right? That's just part of being in community together. And so he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning or or complaining. Well, 
I don't think he's saying, okay, let's all be North Korea. Um, you know, anybody that complains gets shot. You know, it's, it, I don't think that's a healthy spiritual community, right? Um, there are healthy ways to deal with church decisions that you don't like. I mean, there are. That's just part of life in a family. Good spiritual leaders should, should listen. And, and I, I appreciate the way that you all have often done this with our leaders over the years. Um, and the best way is just sit down with a leader and ask, you know, hey, what, what is the reasoning behind this? Or um, here's the way that decision is affecting me. Or uh, maybe the next time you make a decision like that, here's another way you could think about it. That's very helpful um, for a leader. Uh, I jotted down a couple of things that you might think about. You know, next time you feel like you need to talk to a leader about something that's concerning you. And again, I, I think you all do a good job uh, with this. Those aren't my favorite emails. Um, but after I get them, uh, I realize, thank you. That's what you're supposed to do, um, is talk to your leaders. Um, but here's a couple of things that you might think of whenever it comes time to talk to a leader of a small group or committee or on the shepherding team or even broader at work or something like that. Uh, first, give the benefit of the doubt to the leaders that made the decision. Um, don't, don't make a lot of assumptions that you know why they made it and, and things like that. Give them grace. Doesn't Scripture say love you know, uh, bears a multitude of sins and believes all things? Secondly, do remember that you don't have all the information. I know that's, that, that's hard, but, but uh, usually uh, leaders know a lot of things that, that they can't share with everybody. And a lot of times a decision is made, and, and you may not be privy to all the reasons why. Uh, third, when you share it, be gracious and kind, realizing that those who accept the burden of leadership do so at great cost. Um, you know, I... I've very rarely seen someone wake up in the morning and say, you know, I'm going to go to a board meeting tonight and really do some damage. I wonder how many people I can hurt tonight. Most of the time, the boards I've been in, the organizations I've been in, people are trying to do their best, and they're just like you, and they're tired, and they're overworked, and they'd rather not be at that meeting, (laughs) and they don't want another email, and, and so when you share things, it's helpful to, you know, appreciate that. But you do need to share. When you do, be truthful and direct. There's no sense beating around the bush. Um, and give specific examples. Here's what you did, here's how it affected me, and here's what I wish you would have done differently. And please don't say, you know, lots of people are saying. <laughs> the thing... I hate the most as a pastor is what I get a lots of people are saying um, then they all should come talk. Um, you should share what you experience because that's, that's the healthiest way to do it. One other little thought on this that it's hard to, to, for me to understand sometimes is listening well does not always mean agreeing. Uh, you you might go and you really be convinced that a decision is wrong. And you share with the leader and they listen and they don't change course. 
That doesn't always mean that they didn't hear you uh, and that they're hard-hearted and rebellious and God's curse is coming on the church. <laughs> you know, it doesn't always mean that. It might mean they just see it differently. So keep that in mind as well. How do you know when you've crossed a line? You know, let's be honest. You know, churches deal with this stuff all the time. We're always making decisions, and so it's normal that you're going to need to talk about things. Uh, I don't think that's what the apostle's forbidding here. Uh, How do you know when a helpful discussion about a church decision you're frustrated with has become a kind of grumbling and questioning that Paul forbids? Uh, I'd say just trust the Spirit. I mean, you'll know, right? You can tell when it's gone from something that is creating shalom shalom, to something that's tearing down shalom. You can tell. You know. You don't need a law. Just trust the Spirit. And I think what you do in a time like that is you pull back and you just say, you know, I just feel like we have maybe talked about this enough. And... uh, Maybe, maybe, maybe you could go talk to whatever leader is uh, involved with that decision. Well, what happens when we start to live this way? Um, well, it's a beautiful little conclusion here. Paul says, when you do this, You'll be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. Mm. You know, one of the questions that a lot of Christian leaders are asking today is, boy, the culture is really changing. How do we witness for Christ? How do we live for Christ? in a culture that is increasingly becoming secularized. Matter of fact, the cover story of uh, the November issue of Christianity Today, which is a magazine for evangelical Christian leaders, begins with this line, By many accounts, Orthodox Christians have lost the culture wars. How can they live well and not vanish in a time of retreat? And then the essay explores how Christians can relate to a culture that is increasingly moving away from biblical values. Paul's answer, at least in this little part of Scripture, is is something we ought to think about because he describes a culture he's living in as crooked and twisted. How are people to relate to that culture? Well, he says, love well. (laughs) He says that Trinity thing. Do that. You, you deal with your stuff. You work out your relationships. And, and when you do, you'll be like a lantern in the dark, guiding people back to God. Uh, the CT story had three responses, and one of them I didn't necessarily agree with, but he made this point. He said, The first Benedictine monks responded to the crisis and chaos of their day by building a new community within which they could hold on to the truths of the faith. Only by living out positive asceticism in common prayer, work, and worship in intentional community could the monks be who Christ meant them to be for the world. We are not all called to be monks, of course, but we lay Christians have much to learn from the monastic example. Given this post-Christian new dark age, we small O Orthodox Christians must pioneer new ways to bind ourselves to Scripture, to our traditions, and to each other 
not for mere survival, but so that the church can be the authentic light of Christ to the world. This is the Benedict option. And it will help us Christians to be distinct, but not wholly apart from our post-Christian culture. I thought I, I like that image of uh, the, the Benedict option. You know, that's something we've talked about at All Souls. Is this idea that All Souls is a kind of a monastery? And I think all we're saying in that is that uh, well, we hope to be a, a, a place where people are intentional about trying to grow in their ability to love each other well, and that that might be the most prophetic witnessing act that we can do. Um, I'll, I'll end, just have a friend who I love deeply, who's not a believer, who I've been praying for for a couple of years, and um, he, he's, uh, he's asked me 15 times about Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> he's single, he's uh, a little older and lonely, and he's coming over to Thanksgiving dinner. And one of the things I think that he's just bumped into a little bit is that my daughter and I swim together and I've got a little community with some other Christian friends on the team and I think I think he's smelling a little bit of Christian love. So he wants to come to dinner. Let's pray.